Okay, so this is our Simon Don reading group. Um, we're continuing volume two of Individuation in Light of Notions of Form and Information. We're on uh, the text History of the Notion of the Individual. Um, for those following along in the PDF, we're picking up from page 562. Um, so we uh, were we started, we got like about two pages into the decaf sec section. Um, uh, and we'll, I think we should be able to finish that section today. Um, it's a, a long one, so I'm not 100% sure. Um, but um, yeah, so last time we looked at uh, the, um, the sort of transition from uh, the medieval period to the early modern period. Um, Simon Don sort of skips over the Renaissance uh, for whatever reason, um, but he, he, um, looks at uh, the sort of the fundamental schema of, um, of the uh, notion of the individual in the early modern period for Simondon is the notion of construction. So um, there's sort of the individual as something constructed. Um, so an entity is something that, that is constructed in thought. Um, and there's also the individual sort of performing the construction um, these are sort of two aspects of what what construction uh, has to do with the individual in uh, in the early modern period. Um, and um, we we looked at the section on Francis Bacon, um, who has uh, this conception of um, intellectual inquiry as having to do with um, a sort of inductive reasoning. So you you observe a lot of things or you perform a lot of experiments. And you, as a result of these experiments, you uh, sort of come to grasp uh, a universal. So you say, you know, heat causes X or um, motion has property Y, whatever. Um, you come to, to grasp these universal propositions just through uh, repeated, um, repeated observations. Uh, and there's no role here or a very limited role for deduction. Uh, there, um, and so this is an opposition to uh, the medieval scholastic tradition where deductive knowledge is prioritized as the the most uh, significant and the most secure form of knowledge. Um, and then we also had in in Bacon this notion of um, uh, trying to achieve mastery over nature. Uh, so the individual, the human individual um, seeks knowledge not just for its own sake or the sake of you know contemplation as in the medieval, um, the Aristotelian tradition, uh, we seek knowledge so that we can control nature and make it serve our ends. Uh, and so there's a sort of sort of practical nature of of knowledge um, in Bacon. Uh, and then we started the the section on Descartes, um, who follows Bacon in um, wanting to have a, a knowledge that allows for mastery over nature. Uh, but he is we can distinguish his approach to that um, knowledge from Bacon's because he has a, a strongly deductive approach to knowledge. So he thinks that um, we our knowledge of the world is primarily deductive. So we we have um, uh, this intuitive knowledge of certain fundamental principles about um, how motion works, for example, uh, and then we deduce the consequences of these fundamental principles. Uh, and and that's how we get knowledge of um, uh, more particular phenomena in nature. So the whole system of our knowledge of nature is deductive. And he also, um, uh, in connection with this deductive approach to knowledge, we have um, the the famous cogito argument that that uh, Descartes presents to um, to 
sort of provide the foundation for knowledge. Um, and so Simondon analyzes this argument in terms of um, um, how the individual is sort of the the basis for the the validity of knowledge or the certainty of knowledge. Uh, so it's because um, because we as an individual or I as an individual, um, because I sort of separate myself from any um, particular concerns of school doctrine or um, a social class or whatever other particularities that that define me as a person. It's because I separate myself from all of these that I can perform the cogito in its purity so I can um, sort of uh, uh, leave everything, all of the knowledge that I think I have of the world um, that I learned in school or that I learned from experience, I, I can put all of that into doubt and then I can uh, reach the pure knowledge of myself, of, of my own existence um, through, through the cogito. Uh, and so there's a sort of purification, intellectual purification of the individual to reach that pure self-knowledge that's the foundation of all other knowledge. Um, so that's um, mostly what we looked at last time. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's about all I wanted to say about the what we read last time. So I can I can read the yeah I sure. can read first. <laughs> yeah, um, let's go through a page or so, and then we'll stop there. Um, okay. So yeah, pre-reflexive reality is not the cogito, properly speaking but the individual qua center of an activity that seeks certainty. Cogito could neither be discovered in the contemplation of the world's order nor obtained through a revelation. It cannot be discovered without being achieved, and its universality is expressed by the fact that every subject who will want to comprehend it will have to reachieve it in himself as if he discovered it. In Descartes, the construction of truth is no longer a logical or pedagogical procedure meant to allow a non-initiated individual to penetrate into the domain of the true, there is no domain of the true. The true is coextensive with the real, and the real is something constructed. He who performs this operation of the cogito again comprehends it as profoundly as Descartes was able to. There is no property of truth or of a doctrine. Descartes found claims of anteriority to be inept. Truth is not transmitted, it is reproduced, such as the veritable meaning of individuality according to Descartes. The individual is the being who has reached the universality of operation i.e. who is delivered from everything that halts and relativizes by shackling creative and constructive movement, prejudices and uh, precipitation and prevention. The individual is not the particular being submitted to the here and now, but the being who has acquired the capacity to act as any other being could act if it had managed to get rid of itself, managed to rid itself of its particularity. The particularities of race, birth, education, revelation are not conceived by Descartes as guarantees of certainty and means of assurance, but as restraints, limits, and ultimately causes of error. These means, which is suited to weakness, as Plato said of opinion, must be eliminated by whatsoever seeks truth. The principle of authority is bad for this reason. It gives rise to a false security. There is consequently no individualism in Descartes, because the individual, such as he discovers himself, given to himself, must never be the principle of seeking or of action. This individual is still too much the result of the random exercise of desires and a certain education. It cannot be taken as a solid basis. What distinguishes one individuality from another based on contingent aspects must not be conserved. That has nothing to do with, the veritable, with veritable individuality. For Descartes, veritable individuality is in the form of the recurrence of activity of thought, activity and thought upon themselves. The medicine of these of the passions will be practiced in no other way, in wisdom providing 
quote, contentment, end quote, will have no other goal. Uh, should I read one more paragraph or stop yeah, there? Continue. Okay. According to this principle, the relation of the individual to the species can only be thought in an ancillary way. Classification of beings cannot provide a method for thinking. The difference between the species therefore becomes a difference in kind and of internal structure. In this sense, the animals are completely different from man since they have no soul and are purely corporeal. It is remarkable that according to Descartes' principle, the individuality of animals resides in the automatism of the machine in which they completely consist. But human individuality, already sufficiently dependent on the automatism of thought revealed in, co in the cogito, another automatism must be joined with it, namely that of this corporeal machine that our senses reveal to us. The link is not clear. Certainly, we can say, like Descartes says in a letter to Elizabeth, that one, quote, would have, would have to have corrupted sense, unquote, to deny that there is a relation between the soul and the body. This is not an absolutely valid reason. The veritable difficulty is knowing how two beings, which could already be individuals apart from one another, in fact form a single individuality. Having left aside the model of biological individuality, where an individual unity is revealed through the convergence of functions, and having taken as the model of individuality the extreme particular case wherein causality and finality coincide in the automatism of an activity, Descartes could not interpret the individuality of the soul and body composite through the same method as the one he used for the animals, hyphen machines, or the soul qua res cogitans. It seems like the first part of this is what you were talking about, the, sh the shedding of particularity, um, and then you know, obviously there's this famous difficulty in Cartesianism, which we've discussed before about the, the difficulty of the link uh, between the res cogitans and the res extensa. I think it's kind of this very short sentence where he just says the link is not clear. is kind of a funny understatement of <laughs> this difficulty. Yeah, this is the, the fundamental difficulty of, of uh, Cartesian, Cartesianism is, is precisely that point that... that um, interaction between soul and body um, and you know you could say that this is um, one of the fundamental problems that philosophy has been dealing with ever since uh, Descartes um, so that um, yeah so the way Simondo presents it here is that so um, Descartes has sort of given up on the biological understanding of individuality that um, that Aristotle relied on and that sort of informs the whole Aristotelian tradition. So we can't say that the individual is something that um, has a, a life and is sort of unified in terms of uh, a lifespan and uh, uh, the functions of life, um, because for, for Descartes, the soul is um, utterly distinct from the body. It's a distinct substance. It has nothing in common with the body. Um, and so... Um, in particular, um, this is something that I think is maybe not emphasized enough when, when people um, read Descartes, is that he presents a, a completely mechanistic picture of, of living bodies, including the human body. So he gives um, mechanical analyses of um, the action of the heart in pumping blood and uh, producing the animal spirits. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the workings of the nerves are, are sort of, uh, he gives a hydraulic model. Of, of how the nerves function, um, like everything in the human body is is mechanical. And he even gives um, a, a mechanical um, model for how memory works. So memory is something that um, uh, has to do with the body and not specifically with the soul. Um, uh, so all this is to say that he, he um, 
everything that in the Aristotelian tradition was um, taken to be part of the the function of the soul in the soul as the form of the body, um, that, that sort of uh, collection of functions that make up the life of an organism, uh, all, all of that is analyzed in mechanical terms. It's all just um, bits of extension and moving around and bumping into each other. Um, and and so how to get from, from that to something to, how we can get from that to um, interaction with the soul is uh, like a, a completely um, impossible um, sort of uh, disjunction between the two. Um, there, there doesn't seem to be any way to bridge to bridge between the two. Um, although Descartes tries, uh, we'll see a, a little bit later some of the um, specifics of his attempts to um, to bridge that gap. But um, he ultimately thinks that it's unintelligible. Uh, it's something that we we just have to acknowledge the fact that the body and the soul are united uh, through an act of, of God. Um, and uh, we, we can't actually understand it because it, it's beyond human understanding. Uh, so obviously that's not very satisfying as an answer to, to say that there, there is no answer. Um, uh, and so uh, a lot of um, subsequent philosophy was uh, occupied with coming up with uh, a better explanation of, what the relationship is between these intellectual functions that um, make up the soul uh, and the vital functions that uh, organize the functioning of the body. Uh, and, and so that's going to be one of the sort of fundamental problems that we'll be dealing with in the rest of the, the development of this text. Okay, um, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, I can read a page or so. Furthermore, a postulate is needed in order to pass from the cogito to the other operations of the, of the race cogitants while continuing to guarantee that there is one and the same thinking substance, the homogeneous continuity of the operations of thought. This continuity is ensured by the reflexive nature of every thought. When it was pointed out to Descartes that it was enough to say, I walk, therefore I am, Descartes responded that one could in fact say, I think that I walk, therefore I am. The same goes for sensations. Sensations are part of the race cogitants, not insofar as they are what lead us to consider the outside world, but instead as the awareness of a certain act of thought. Nevertheless, here again, the unity and identity of the individual are threatened by apparent or real interruption, like fainting and sleep. Descartes supposes that thought never stops. When, sorry, but then it, is it necessary to assert a non-conscious reflexivity? Moreover, are consciousness and reflexivity truly the most important aspects of activities like desire or passion? Part of the goal of the medicine of the passions is to forge the Cartesian individual in line with the Cartesian conception, like the Cornelian hero in whom generosity is the source of perpetual overabundance of being, ensuring individual unity and identity. But there can be individuals who do not live in a Cartesian way and who are individuals nonetheless. Are the structure of the body and the activity of the race cogitants enough to constitute individuality? This is the unanswered question to which Cartesian theory leads, insofar as it remains an optative rather than a definitive analysis. However, despite these paradoxical aspects of the notion of individuality, Cartesian doctrine defines and proposes a lifestyle and an ethical attitude that gives a coherent dynamic aspect to the individual being. The human soul has within it the principle of its movement. It possesses the primordial seeds of its truth. Concerning mathematics, Descartes writes, I am convinced that this method was foreseen by superior minds through the guidance of nature alone. For the human soul has something divine, I know not what, in which are founded the first seeds of useful cogitations in a way that often produces spontaneous fruit, whether, however neglected and suffocated it may have been by studies that are at cross purposes. We see it in the easiest sciences, arithmetic and geometry. The doctrine of generosity is not fundamentally different from that of the admirable science, i.e. of method founded on the inventive capacity of order. 
and yet order is inherent in the nature of terms and allows for them to be discovered. The norms of action are inherent within action itself and do not consist in, in an arbitrary code. In a mathematical problem, the unknown quantities are always linked to the known quantities through relations implicitly defined in the given of the problem. Once the natural order of these givens is known, the value of the unknown will be extracted by the solution of the equation. Similarly, the necessity of acting does not leave time to determine one's choice in accordance with indubitable motives. The problem of action would consequently be a pure theoretical problem. In fact, one must act before knowing. One must decide. And yet decision consists in starting to act and in continuing to act according to the path inherent in the first gesture of action. This gesture would have no meaning if it were not followed by realization, but it takes on a value through its fruitfulness by becoming the first term of a series of actions that are arranged toward a completion. Here again, it is the order that pr provides a series of terms with consistency, and this consistency is not a pure form. It is revealed by its fruitfulness. It is inventive power. The human individual is the engine of order. He is the one who operates the ordered relation. Who knows how to order the known terms to discover the reason of the progression and then to draw it out uh, out of the other terms. Thanks to order, the subject elicits a certain automatism from the relation due to which new terms appear. Veritable Cartesian morality is indeed a provisional morality for it corresponds to a problem to be resolved that is different in each case. And this problem can only be resolved by supposing a term that is not given in the statement, but combined with the terms of the statement defines a fruitful order. The individual being intervenes here as one who creates this term that must be added to the situation and without which it cannot be ordered. The subject therefore has a power of initiative. Without him, the problem would remain undetermined. It closes the axiomatic to speak in modern terms. And this closure not only makes action possible, but is completed with the action as it is being completed. This is what the automatism consists in. Uh, I'll stop here because this is one of these giant paragraphs. Um, right, so one of the um, sort of sub-problems or, or uh, secondary aspects of the, the problem of the relationship between soul and body is that um, if the soul, if the essence of the soul is thinking, if the, if the soul is a race cogitance, then um, we have to um, deal with what appears to be a, an absence of thinking in sleep or um, uh, after fainting or, or other episodes where we uh, are not aware of ourselves as thinking. Uh, and Descartes has to hold that we, there, in fact, is thinking. Um, thinking is something that um, it goes on constantly. There's no, there's no um, pause in thinking. Uh, so even when we're in dreamless sleep where our soul is still engaged in thinking, in in some respects or in some sense um and um yeah so this is sort of a, a secondary problem of the relationship between the body and the soul um but then simon um passes um kind of abruptly i think to um away from the analysis of the cogito to um to this analysis of the um of descartes um theory of action or his his um provisional morality. Uh, so he, Descartes argues that um, we have to sort of, um, because we can't um, delay action, we have to act in the world, we have to, you know, earn a living and, um, uh, you know, deal with our neighbors and whatever other sort of actions that make up our everyday life, we have to continue to do that, even though we don't have a, a completed system of knowledge that would um, allow us to to um, sort of derive a, a, a final um, ethical system, we have to act according to a, a provisional ethical system or a provisional morality. Um, so we have to sort of do the best we can with our limited knowledge um, before 
um, like while we're sort of waiting for the definitive system of, of morals to be established uh, once we have a, uh, a more complete knowledge of the world. Um, and so this um, sort of provisional morality uh, has um, a sort of difficult character in the sense that we have to, um, we have to act uh, in situations where we don't have enough knowledge or enough information to make a decision. So we might have um, a partial understanding of, of whatever the situation is. Uh, and the partial understanding that we have doesn't allow us to say that option one is better than option two um, or vice versa. And so we, we have to select either option one or option two without having uh, the knowledge that would allow us to make that decision. Uh, so there has to be a sort of um, um, a kind of leap uh, to to choose one of these options, even without having the requisite information. And this is what uh, decision consists in, properly speaking. So it's only it's only in a situation where the choice of um, of action is undecidable, uh, in the sense that there's no um, uh, there's no reason for selecting one option over the other. It's only in this situation that a true decision is possible. It seemed to me like there were similarities here with, well, Simon, kind of Simon Don's notion of the the problem, which requires, and maybe this is broader than just Simon Don, but which, you know, like the real problem, as we discussed in volume one, which requires some sort of creative input um, in order to be resolved and can't be resolved merely by the examination of its conditions. But also the idea that acting, uh, it, Action is not a matter of choosing, just choosing the you know pre-existing options, but of kind of retroactively creating the options with the action in the same way that he says that like the path individuates at the same time as the the choice of the path in that that confusing section on uh, psychic individuation. Yeah, I think um, I think I would want to make a distinction here um, between. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, first of all, I would, I would say you're right to um, connect these two passages, but I, I would want to make a distinction between the way Simon Don, Simon Don presents the, um, uh, this um, uh, creativity of action as making compatible what was not compatible uh, or what, what um, was not so, um, sort of immediately compatible. So um, action as um, taking uh, some sort of incompatibility and inventing or creating the dimension in which those those incompatibles will become compatible. Um, so that's that's sort of Simon Don's um, account of, of uh, the creativity of action um, just sort of sketched out. Uh, and then I think I would want to distinguish that from Descartes' account, um, according to which uh, we the the set of um, options is is sort of given to us already in the situation in the um, in whatever the situation is where we have to make a, a choice, um, it's what what is not given is the capacity to select one of those options. So there's nothing in the situation that that uh, allows us to say that that option one is better than option two or vice versa. Uh, and um, and then we have to make this sort of pure act of will, um, this sort of um, gratuitous action of selecting option one instead of option two. Um, uh, and uh, so this is a, a kind of um, it's not it's not so much creating one of the options as um, 
selecting an option in a situation where there's nothing, there's no rational basis to to prefer that option to another one. Um, so this this is um, Descartes' conception of this provisional morality um, where that requires this sort of act of will to select one option over another, uh, as opposed to the the creative conception of action in Simon Don. Thanks. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, the, so the the choices do pre-exist the action in Descartes. Be one of the main differences. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and um, I think yeah. So the the types of situations that Descartes is thinking of probably um, are are sort of more sort of mundane situations um, of you know do I accept this job offer or do I do I um, do I reject it or do I um, uh, you know, support political candidate A or political candidate B or or something like that. Right. So these are are sort of decisions you have to make in a sit, and you don't have uh, the information you would need or the knowledge you would need to be able to say, uh, yes, I I can say with certainty that option one is better than option two. Um, and so these are the kinds of situations where where you have to make a decision, um, just sort of pure a pure action of will. Um, Whereas I think Simon Don was thinking primarily of um, less less sort of mundane uh, situations, but um, uh, an action like uh, inventing a new type of technical object or coming up with a new scientific theory or um, um, uh, you know uh, some sort of uh, ethical dilemma where you um, discover a way of reconciling some uh, different principles that seem to be uh, conflicting with each other. Um, so. Yeah, for Simon Don, he's he's thinking of situations that are are not mundane, but where um, there's this sort of discord that you have to overcome and uh, invent the compatibility of what seem to be incompatible options. Right, that makes sense. Uh, question about the one part, like uh, that's a page five or six or three. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, around the ten uh, lines from the button. What it asks is, is moreover, our consciousness and reflexivity uh, truly the most important aspects of activists like desire or passion. Uh, to the uh, this question, and then the following part, like uh, in a way, shows like the the Cartesian Cartesian idea of an individual. So what it says is like uh, the passions, passions. I as far as I understand, the passions like the. Uh, help like the formulate the um, consistence of uh, individual. So my question is that actually this part exactly I uh, read it with my uh, other other people like uh, when we read the ethics, it was there. We we talked about the origin of desire and then the difference between desire and passion. And then according to uh, Spinoza. Desire is uh, um, defined as like uh, aptitude plus consciousness. Aptitude is uh, a little there, and then if consciousness is added, and then that uh, becomes desire. That's what Spinoza says. So I think that's this part definitely from the Spinoza. I think, and then according to Simong Dong, that what Simong Dong thinks is that in 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 Descartes, I mean the era of Descartes. Now, individual is a little bit differently uh, defined from the previous time, or what exactly means, like a, in connection to uh, Spinoza, Spinozian idea. I mean, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. So sorry, and also like uh, before that, I also read like Antipodes, like, and then that 
that part, early part, that we there talk about the the definition of a desire. That is also uh, uh, in relation to this this part as well, because like uh, uh, first to lose like defines desire as a uh, production of production, something like that. So a little bit far from the Spinozian idea, some. So it's quite quite interwoven. At the same time, it's hard to clarify. It's not transparent for me. Like it's not that clear. So we we can just focus on this part. So is there any any idea, any thoughts of this part? Yeah, I think that's yeah, that's, that's an, uh, a good um, sort of counterpoint to to bring up um, because yeah. So we'll we'll get to Spinoza in a little bit. Um, I think that's the the next one after Descartes. Uh, oh no, sorry, there's one on Pascal. Um, and then, um, uh, yeah, then Spinoza. Um, but yeah, so maybe in a couple of weeks we'll get to Spinoza, but, um, to, for now, um, what I would say is that, um, um, there's, so in Descartes, there's, uh, in some sense, a similar notion of, um, um, regulation of the passions. Um, so both, both Descartes and Spinoza have, um, an understanding of human existence as, um, being, uh, affected by passions, um, and, and they have sort of different understandings of what exactly that means. But they both have um, have um, a conception where part of what it means to be to live a rational life is to is to sort of come come up with a way of managing those passions. And um, but I think there is a difference in that for for Descartes, what we want to do is to um, sort of um, regulate the passions so that they on, they don't affect our cognitive um, uh, capacities. So we want to make sure that um, we're capable of judging and reasoning uh, without being affected by um, by the passions. Whereas for Spinoza, um, he, I think, understands the relationship between, uh, between passions and uh, reason in a different way. I think he, for Spinoza, um, the regulation of the passions uh, or reason and the regulation of the passions are sort of intertwined with each other so that um, we, uh, through, through rational life, through um, you know, understanding um, the nature of God and, and the, the world, um, we come to have the, uh, our soul comes to be um, uh, predominantly made up of the intellectual love of God um, and and so this love is a kind of passion, uh, but it's a, a passion that is brought about through reason. Um, it's it's only because we have this rational grasp on the nature of God that we um, have the capacity to uh, experience the intellectual love of God. Uh, and and so there's a kind of um, um, production of passions in in Spinoza that we don't find uh, this rational production of passions that we don't find in Descartes um, um, in the same way. So yeah, there, there's similarities and differences between the two. Um, but yeah, so the, the passions are um, kind of um, a key element in understanding this era of, uh, of thought, uh, because what exactly like the, the soul body relationship um, also sort of implies or, or brings about um, a problem of what the relationship is between the passions and the intellectual uh, capacities of the soul. Uh, and, and so trying to understand that relationship is sort of uh, connected with the problem of the soul and the body. 
The most important thing is not the conscious or the flexibility and the passionate desire. The most important thing is the rationality. Make a, we should uh, make a rationality control the passion. That's kind of the idea of Descartes, uh, as uh, far as Simon Do understands. Yeah, and, and so I think that line that you're referring to where, where he says, uh, where Simon Do says, moreover, our consciousness and reflexivity truly the most important aspects of activities like desire or passion. So I think what Simon Do is, is doing with this, I think this is sort of a rhetorical question. He's suggesting that um, Descartes' analysis of desire and of the passions is sort of inadequate um, because it it kind of um, um, it it sort of assimilates the passions to um, to uh, rational thought. It it's, it treats the passions as if they were um, sort of um, similar in in this way to rational thought. They're also sort of made up of this um, uh, conscious awareness uh, and so on. Uh, and Simon Don takes it that um, this is only sort of a subsidiary aspect of the passions. And what's more important is something else. Like um, He doesn't really specify what, what it is here, but um, what's most important about the passions is not the fact that we're consciously aware of them, um, that we have this conscious um, experience of anger or fear or, or love or whatever. Um, it's uh, something, some other aspect of the passions is more important than this conscious awareness of them. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. Uh, can, I, can I really quickly, one more question about the, the meaning of a machine? Because like 565, five, uh, actually you, you um, explained like uh, the functional, I know, machine, mechanic, mechanic functions of the part. So it, in line with uh, the rationality of, uh, in line with rationality, Descartes emphasizes we can understand like uh, the function of a simple machine. He understand he understand the machine, machinic or mechanic kind of more uh, logically. Uh, everything is composed. Everything uh, everything is like uh, structured or something that that's kind of idea. Why the word machine is he used to here? Right. So um, Descartes gives a, an analysis of um, the human body and animal bodies in terms of. Uh, mechanical operations so every the the human body is just a, an extremely complicated machine um and it's made up of um simpler machines like pulleys and levers and gears and so on um these are all sort of um uh like the machines that we create um are just sort of um uh simple versions of the types of machines that um that god created that the world is made up out of um so the world is the the physical world. The uh, race extensa is um, is just um, a set of machines of, of varying degrees of complication that that um, interact with each other through mechanical means. So um, you have different particles with different shapes that sort of fit into each other in different ways, uh, and they transmit motion from one to another um, by contact, by shock, um, and uh, um yeah so they they just um the whole uh physical world is just um a bunch of machines that um are connected to each other through um through physical shock or physical contact uh and and that includes uh human and animal bodies um uh and so this is sort of the the um this is how Descartes tries to understand the physical world uh, in purely mechanical terms, uh, but then that leaves the 
the problem that he um, says is beyond human understanding of how the soul actually is connected to this set of machines um, that make up the human body. Uh, and, and so this is sort of the key problem that he doesn't have any way of addressing. Yeah, yeah, I could, yeah. I, I, maybe like everything would be much clearer later. But I, I'm just like wondering how it can have some relation to like a you know delusion machines, and also maybe like a Simundo also developed has developed some kind of ideas based on this this kind of term. Maybe like in his like idea of uh, development of the psychic individuation and collective individuation. The so maybe we can we can talk later like. Yeah, because the the water machine, like you know, it just reminded me of like a delusion machine. Yeah, um, and I think we can probably um, uh, go on a little bit. There's there's more talk about machines on the next couple of pages and um, how they fit together and so on. Um, yes. so maybe it will make more sense after the next couple of pages. Um, okay, so maybe Ali, would you like to read the next uh, page or so, um, starting from sure. up of five sixty five? Five sixty five, right? Yeah. And then that is the this this is why. Um, no, we're at the action undergoing yeah. decrease. Sorry, I yes. just get lost. Uh, five six five and which which line is that? One two three four lines down from the top. Okay, this is why mathematical that part, right? Uh, I think that's no. that's no? the line that starts the action undergoing completion. Oh my gosh! Why are you oh, are you looking at the what? print book? Uh, no no no! Book the old uh the PDF file. Five six five. What it says is like, oh, uh, which is start with him. The problem would remain under under uh, undetermined. That that is the beginning of five six five, right? Yeah. So yeah. It's, and then uh, a couple lines down from there. So one two three four lines down. Four lines. One two three four. The action undergoing. Oh, sorry. I, yeah. Oh my God. I just got sorry about that. Uh, the action undergoing completion corresponds to a series in development. And the positioning, a positing of its successive terms according to the necessity of its argument and the given of the first term. Like thought of the functioning of a simple machine, action is a lossless transfer carried out from the first term to the last. A lever, compound police, gears, transfer without loss, the quantity of the movement, of movement applied from the mobile side to the resistance side. A chain transfers without loss. The action exerted exerted on one of its extre extremities to the other extremity, just as a building transfers. The forces are exerted by the roof on the uppermost floor to all the lower floors, all the way down to the to the bedrock, which is the ultimate foundation. The order of the action of levels, the levels, the order of panke. Concatenation, concatenation, the order of superposition bring about lossless transfer of the quantity of movement. In the same way, reasoning brings about lossless transfer of sense from the first propositions to the last. This lossless transfer is not enough for invention. Simple machines only provide cases of equilibria, they only correspond to th uh, theory, theory if they diverge inf uh, infinitesimally. From conditions of equilibrium, simple machines provide in their fun functioning neither the image of the series in which new terms are deduced, nor the image of the action that discovers its own norms based on an, an initial indetermination. But lossless transfer is necessary for the autom autom automatism of fruitfulness to be possible. 
The mathematical series is not pure identity, yet the identity and equivalence of the two quantities must have a meaning for the rapport of rapport to have a meaning. Simple machines are not autom automatons, but automatons are made of simple machines organized together, each of which is compared to bring about transfer of a quantity of movement. Each simple machine in turn is nothing but a combination of chains, levels, levels, years, which are successfully, successively interacting levels, such as mathematics would remain fruitless if it only resorted to pure identity, which would lead it to be an immense tautology. Action would be nothing if it were merely the affirmation of an identical principle in multiple cases. In mathematics, order is what makes it possible to pursue an equality across the terms or rapport of, rapport of terms, which are not identical. Order is also what allows us to confer unity on an operation, which posits new terms that are not contained within the situation into which action inserts them. This is why mathematical invention and moral action are possible. The theoretical uh, spirit is one who gives consequence to the principles that did not have any yet like Descartes, who rediscovers deontological arguments in Saint Anselm. The man who acts is one who gives a result to a situation that would remain an extricable problem without it and would bind man to the fruitless indetermination of a choice. The Cornelian hero does not choose. He continues beyond the necessity of choice and surpass choice by overcoming it. What is a Cartesian? Cartesian in Lucid is not the long monologue of a stanza in which the alternative arrests the action, but the battle with the victory over Moors, the Moors, which provides a solution by positing a new term with respect to the alternative. Out of this superabundance of being, with a prolonged but does not repeat the action already begun, a renewal of the situation appears in which the characters find themselves. In its progress, action has the power to modify the terms beginning with the acts. Here again, the paradoxical aspects of the individual becomes apparent. The ordered action is not one that is locked into the choice of what is predictable let it begin. Such an action would be fruitless. To be ordered and singular, action must surpass itself and always be new. Action is a gesture based on situation that transforms the situation so as to justify itself in this transformed situation. The gesture unfolds according to the situation that it creates, and it can only insert itself in the situation that it creates. The individual can realize its unity only with seeming to detach from its identity. There is identity only at the end of action. Conditions of generous action require a superabundance of being. Yeah, stop here. Yeah. Stop here, yeah. Um, yep. Thanks. This is a, a long uh, multi-page paragraph again. Um, also, one one thing, um, I don't know if, if someone could bring up um, footnote uh, 95, um, uh, if someone could bring that up, uh, because in the text it's like uh, a page long. Um, so I think we should read that um, as well um, after we finish discussion of this section. Uh, and it's an important one too, I think. Um, um, so this this bit, um, he, I think here he is sort of 
it, it's difficult to um well let, let's go back first to the bit about machines um yeah so let's look at this bit about machines um so here he's talking about uh simple machines like um uh, a lever a pulley um, a set of gears um so these were sort of the, in in 16 uh in 17th century um mechanics the, these were sort of the um uh principal um uh, components into which machines were broken down uh so any sort of more complicated machine uh can be understood in terms of uh, a set of simple machines that are linked together in some way uh and um Simon Dong here interprets Descartes as using this set of simple machines as a model for um for the way that um uh evidence is transmitted um from one um set of premises to a conclusion um there's a sort of um uh so in the same way that um we understand a house as um transmitting force from the roof to the the pillars to the foundation um the in the same way we have um um uh the transmission of of force from or a transmission of um evidential force we can say or uh, trans transmission of um uh sort of, of of evidence from the premises to the conclusion of an argument um and uh so the order of reasons um in Descartes system is supposed to um begin from these immediately evident principles um like the cogito or ultimately the cogito um uh these immediately evident principles and sort of transmit the evidence of these principles uh from one step to the next in the argument in the same way that a machine will transmit motion from uh uh, uh i don't know a, a lever on one end to a pulley to a set of gears and so on um and uh so the in the same way that the motion the quantity of motion is preserved by the machine uh in the same way that the uh uh evidence of the immediate principles is preserved in transmission through the uh act of reasoning to the next step of the of the argument um so this this is sort of the analogy between um machines and reasoning that that Simondon is drawing from Descartes here um there's also um um right so and then there's a, a sort of a transition here in the text where um simon don i think is sort of um it, it's hard to tell sometimes in this passage to what extent he's um interpreting descartes and to what extent he's sort of developing his own account of action um because they're they seem to be sort of intermingled with each other here um so he he um the the problem that he's sort of setting up or or dealing with here has to do with um how how mathematical invention is possible um so if we if we just understand um reasoning as the transmission of evidence uh then it would just be purely um uh, a set of tautologies uh so we would have um uh like you know all of our mathematical reasoning would be made up of statements like 4 plus four, uh, 2 plus 2 equals 4 or or whatever um some sort of simple immediately obvious um uh statement and then you would just be sort of doing these operations on these immediately obvious statements but then it becomes uh hard to understand how something like invention is possible in mathematics so how is it that we can come up with new methods or new um uh principles of reasoning in mathematics that uh are not immediately obvious or that that don't have this sort of trivial uh character to them 
Uh, and so um, uh, Simondon is, is sort of treating this problem of mathematical invention as uh, uh, an instance of the problem of um, uh, moral action in general. Uh, so the problem is how we can um, um, bring about um, something new, how we can, in a situation where we might have a set of options that are given to us, how, how can we um, bring about something that is, is not just one of those pre-given options or is not um, sort of uh, discoverable just by analysis of the problem, but actually something creative and something new. Um, and I think this is more of a Simon Don question than a Descartes question. I don't think this is um, something that Descartes really um, concerned himself with uh, explicitly, at least. Um, it, this is more something that Simon Don is um, reading into uh, the text of Descartes. Um, so yeah, this this passage is a difficult one because we have to sort of um, uh, separate out what exactly is coming from Descartes and what is coming from Simon Don and, and which one is, is sort of um, at work in any given sentence or, or paragraph in, in this bit. Okay, um, so before we um, move on to the, the next um, section of the text, I think we should read that footnote. Um, if Yeah, uh, I can you... read this. Uh, so, so, sorry, Angus, before the... Can I, can I just like uh, ask a one a simple thing, like about the, the, the previous comment? Yeah, sure. So kind of like a, the Descartian idea of uh, the rationality. Like everything is a chain. I mean, it's a really connected, interconnected well. Like a, a, a cause and effect, or whatever. Like it's kind of really a lineal, uh, rational uh, connections. So as you, as you point out, it has a problem because like there could be something unexpected. So by doing that, Simon, that's why Simon Dong came up with idea of the transduction, like try to introduce more like a biological, biological conception rather than uh rather than sticking to the uh, physics idea so i mean just as it just like a pop, popped up i this idea just was popped up uh, by by doing that i mean by bringing uh the uh, biological ideas transduction uh Dong can like uh, put uh idea of the external factors can uh, change that kind of linear cause and effect kind of you know rational or reasonable i mean uh, 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 reason and co I mean, cause and cause and cause and effect kind of like a connections. It makes some kind of a, a very variation or very very variation from the that kind of uh, connection. What I do you think, think? Yeah, I think um, um, I think you're right that uh, this kind of problem is part of what Simon Don wants to get at when he talks about transductive thinking. Uh, so um, transductive thinking is is a kind of thinking that allows us to understand how um, novelty is possible, so how, uh, and creativity. Um, so I think we talked about this, I think, in, in, in volume one, but um, sort of pure novelty would be um, hardly any different from uh, uh, pure determination. So if, if novelty is, is sort of um, just randomness, um, then you can just understand it in statistical terms and uh, it's ultimately not really anything new. Um, if if your novelty consists in, um, uh, you know, just generating random numbers or something like that, um, it, it's not um, it's not like novelty in the proper sense of the term. Um, and so Simon wants to have an account of something that's novel 
in the sense of creative. Uh, so it's creativity that is the the issue. Um, uh, so it's something that um, arises out of um, out of the situation or the problem, but is not sort of um, already present in the problem before the solution is created. Um, so it, it has to be <clears throat> it has to be new in the sense that you can't sort of um, you can't sort of read it off of the the statement of the problem uh, initially, but it has to at the same time be something that arises out of that problem. Uh, so it's this sort of um, um, mediated mediation between um, between the the problem uh, and uh, something new um, that has to arise in order to um, have this sort of creativity um, and to make creativity possible. Yeah, thank you. Right. Okay. Um, so, Angus, if you would like to read the uh, the footnote, I think we can read the whole thing in one go. But yeah, it's about a page long, so um, quite. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Okay, so this is right after he says that the uh, that the aspect of the that the individual has a paradoxical aspect. That according to which individual reality is not just ambivalent, but consists of an internal duality that establishes an essential relation in it. In each of the points of view from which it can be grasped, the individual consists of the relation of two aspects, ontogenetic and phylogenetic, interiority and exteriority, substantiality and eventual characteristic, freedom and determinism, aseity and participation, profound instinctivity and hyperconscious rationality. This ambivalent duality could be called the problematic or self-problematic nature of the individual. The individual does not encounter difficulties. He has a difficulty to himself. He calls himself into question and is his own problem. He encounters himself on his own path. As one of the clearest aspects of this self-problematic nature, let us cite the analogy of the meaning of life and the meaning of death, the coming to be and passing away of individuality. Individuality is circular causality, confrontation with of oneself with oneself, affirmation and negation of oneself by oneself. Every tendency is twinned, capable of being inverted through the suppression of one of the two branches. It is impossible to adopt either monism or dualism, which would be a suppression of recurrence, because there would no longer be a single term or two isolated terms. There's neither one nor two terms, but a term in the process of splitting and two terms in the process of unifying. The individual is the ongoing relation of union duality. The individual's individuality is precisely trans-individual, for the individual affirms its individuality by opposing its action to its substantiality, sacrifice, sympathy. Uh, But this sympathy and this sacrifice couldn't exist without a relative substantiality of the individual at the start. Action moves, but it moves starting from a point that becomes a point of departure because action distances itself from this point. Relation has the status of being vis-a-vis the terms, and the terms find their value as terms in the act that establishes relation. In this sense, it would be false to say that the individual is merely information. It is, in fact, auto-position of information, condition of information. Information can be posited only relative to a point of view, and there is no point of view except through individuality. The transductive reality of the individual depends on the fact that the individual possesses within itself an allegmatic dynamism that consists in its unity and its plurality, as well as in the fundamental bipolarity of its tendencies. Furthermore, the individual's relation to other individuals and to nature are technical beings in the individual's relation to these things. The individual is invested in a transductive relation. Finally, a third allegmatic rapport permits the first two rapport to exist and is conditioned by them. 
the allogmatic rapport between interiority and exteriority, between the interior transductive rapport and the exterior transductive rapport. Neither of the two initial rapport of interiority or exteriority would be stable without the third, which is the rapport of the two rapport. But this latter would not exist without the former. There is a simultaneity of three rapport. The transductive relation between the first two rapport is manifested by a link of analogy between their dynamic and static structures. These two rapport are transpositions of one another. An analogy is nothing but the symbolic aspect that reveals the transductive activity. In its reality, the rapport is transductive relation. It expresses itself externally as an analogical rapport. Analogy is the symbolic expression of transduction. Analogy does not constitute transduction, but merely expresses it. Plato's study on this subject is not doesn't just have methodological value, even if it is inspired by the technical paradigm of artistic imitation or the minting of coins based on an archetype. It supposes the transductive relation between the source of knowledge and the subject who knows, between the good and the soul, between the sun and the eye. The object is what materializes and mediates the transductive relation of knowledge. This transductive relation is asymmetrical in Plato because the sun and the eye Uh, The good and the soul are analogs without being on the same level in the order of things, order of beings. We should note that based on the fundamental asymmetry between the model and the painting, between the idea of the shuttle and the shuttle, Plato seeks a symmetrical relation. The soul is sister of the ideas and not just analog of the good. The eye veritably emits a light that will encounter the light that comes from the sun and the object. The beginning of this, I actually didn't read this when I was reading this reading for today. But um, <clears throat> the beginning of this, you know, talking about these kind of opposed uh, conceptual distinctions, which are, in fact, uh, I guess, united by real relation in a, in a proper conception of the individual. This makes me think of in the, in the introduction to volume one, where he says that complementarity is an epistemological reverberation of the uh, pre-individual real. And so maybe these are all and maybe like you know all all uh apparently mutually exclusive uh substances or or concepts in Simon Don are a similar kind of epistemological reverberation since they result from not being able to adequately grasp this transductive relation yeah he even says somewhere in volume 1 that uh concepts as such are um inadequate to grasp um transduction um so right yeah, so conceptual thinking um, can can grasp something um, uh, actual. Um, it can grasp an actual entity, um, but it can't grasp the um, the uh, potentiality um, that is sort of bound up in this notion of transduction. Uh, and so we have to. Um, he he talks about intuition in some places, um, but uh, transductive thinking, I think, is is more sort of. Um, uh, considered term for what he wants to substitute for conceptual thinking. Uh, so transduction is not something that happens through concepts, but it's something that concepts undergo uh, in our knowledge. Right. Yeah. And this, sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, uh, just this, uh, this point about an analogy is interesting in light of this, the idea that transduction and thought is, can be understood in terms of analogy. I don't think he ever put it this way in volume one where he calls analogy the symbolic expression of transduction. I think that's a it's a very interesting way to put it. Um, but it seems like the way that transduction functions 
in knowledge is like the example of how of the like behavior of uh, different extremes of the electromagnetic spectrum, where there's that there's some like uh, atmospheric layer that uh, will refract radio waves, I think, but not not uh, waves of a of a higher frequency. Um, but there, but these waves are refracted in for like the at the very uh, low or smaller end of the electromagnetic spectrum, they're refracted in like crystalline structure. Um, and it seems like the way transduction operates in thought is grasping this similar the similarity of structure at, in these two domains. And then knowledge is what individuates out of the incompatibility or resolves the incompatibility in these these terms. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think um, I think that's right. Um, sorry, I was just um, looking up. Yeah, the the layer that you're talking about is the heavy side layer. Um, right. Yeah. So there's this layer in the atmosphere, in the upper atmosphere, that uh, reflects radio waves, which allows for transmission of uh, long distance signals. Um, so you can you can like instead of just transmitting radio waves in a straight line from point A to point B, you can uh, transmit the wave that will bounce off the uh, upper atmosphere and then redescend to point B um, in, you know, that, that could be, you know, uh, far away from point A. Um, yeah, so that's, that's sort of one property of um, one portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this passage, there's so much going on and like we could probably right. spend some session just on this one footnote. <laughs> um, um, one bit I wanted to bring up is this notion of, um, um, the sort of trying to overcome the opposition between monism and dualism. Um, he says, um, actually, there's a bit of a translation issue, I think. Let me just bring up the English text here. Um, uh, where is that? I think it's at the end of the first paragraph. Right. Um, yes. Uh, sorry, it's the top of the second screenshot that you posted here. Um, right. Um, yeah, so in the English translation, it says... Um, it is impossible to adopt either monism or dualism, which would be a suppression of recurrence because there would no longer be but a single term or two isolated terms. Um, that last bit, I think, is a mistranslation, I would say. Um, um, where is that? Um, I would say because there would no longer be uh, anything but a single term or two isolated terms. Um, so um, the idea here is that... Um, um, we have to understand the we have to understand individuality as something in which there's um, a sort of unity of the splitting and re recombination of the individual. Um, so the individual is one uh, in in a certain respect, but at the same time, it's it's separating into two. It separates itself into two, uh, into you know interior and exterior. Um, um, all of these different oppositions that he lists at the beginning of this footnote. Um, so, uh, and then at the same time, these these opposed terms, we can't sort of grasp them as just sort of two entities that are next to each other and, and separate from each other. Um, we have to understand them as, as part of a, a process of reunification as well. Uh, so there's a sort of splitting and reunification that is, is sort of immediately the same thing those those the splitting and the reunification are the same thing uh in some difficult to understand way um but this this um uh sort of relation of unity and duality is um 
is ultimately what he, I think, I think this is sort of like the fundamental ontological uh, principle that he wants to um, convey in, in his whole understanding of individuality is this precisely this unit relation of unity and duality um, that, uh, and, and I think, I mean, Simonon doesn't use this term, but I think we can understand this as a, a kind of dialectics, um, uh, you know, the famous line, one splits into two, um, is, is sort of the, the key idea of dialectics. Um, and I think this is, um, um, uh, you know, Simondon is, is sort of ambivalent about the term dialectics, but I think this passage is um, uh, a very dialectical passage. Uh, and, and so I, I would use the term dialectics to describe what he's um, talking about here. I've been reading a lot of Derrida recently, and I'll just say, you know, just want to note quickly that I think that this is like, I mean, I think this is very compatible with Derrida and sometimes just seems like a much more scientifically sophisticated uh, exposition of what Derrida is trying to say in like Plato's pharmacy. But maybe that's just both of them being Hegelian. Yeah, uh, I think it would be it would be very interesting to try to um, um, sort of analyze Simondon's relationship to Hegel, because we saw in volume one that he he criticizes the Hegelian notion of the dialectic um, uh, because he, well, for one thing, he doesn't think that there's a, a moment of negativity um, in the dialectic. He, he thinks that um, we can talk about disparation or, or um, this um, duality, as he puts it in this passage here, um, but we can't understand this in terms as a, something negative. Um, uh, and so he, that's one uh, reason why he's, he's sort of wary of the term dialectics. Uh, is precisely that um, idea of negativity that he draws from that he thinks Hegel um, uses uh, in the dialectic. Um, but yeah, trying to analyze the the way that um, Simondon and and Hegel are um, sort of similar to each other in certain ways, but uh, um, where the divergence lies, I think w- would be a very interesting project. He does call the disparation. I think in the introduction he has that nice turn of phrase where he calls it the an eminence of the negative to the uh, pre-individual. Yeah, it's um, it's it's difficult because he like he he specifically criticizes the sort of negativism, uh, this this notion of the negative as being sort of the motor of the dialectic um, in Hegel, uh, and he thinks that there we can't say that there's like a, a moment of negativity. So like one of the terms of the dialectic would itself be negative, um, but then he right. at the same time, um, yeah, so he he says that. The, the negativity is imminent to the disparation um, so that um, there, there's, there is some kind of negativity at work, but it, it, it's this idea of sort of separating out the negative, I think is what he, um, what he thinks is, is um, uh, that we should criticize in Hegel. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very, um, it's all very abstract and um, it's, it's hard to uh, sort of uh, pin down where exactly the divergence is. What I'm, that that's interesting idea, but at, at the same time, what about? I think this is a slightly different from not slightly different from dialectics because what uh, Simong Dong uh, lists here, for example, interiority, exteriority, or or freedom and determinism. This all sounds like the uh, positive. Uh, this is an uh, antithesis or positive or negative that kind of thing. But maybe it's just like uh, he brings up some extreme I mean, polemic kind of like uh what, what is it like uh this side interiority and the other side has a uh, exteriority uh, 
as a as a different kind of element, not exactly like a, a binary kind of a conception, but the uh, as an element interior, exterior, and then some kind of a turn and twist is like uh, could could occur uh, thanks to the uh, process of a trans uh, uh, trans individual uh, transduction, whatever. So what? He tried to really, really emphasize the here is like uh, the two important concepts are, and still ambiguous is like information uh, and then allegomatic dynamism. So, uh, so called allegomatic dynamism possible thanks to the uh, turn and twist of the this polemic. How do I say that? That exactly like uh, the one on one and the other, just like uh, as an element of like interior, exterior, and then in in between or in the middle. Not uh, as a kind of like a synthesis, but the a little bit of change. It could be according to the each individual. All kind of different, various change could be possible. That that's kind of my understanding. Well, I I could be wrong. So feel free to say it to me. Yeah, um, I think um, yeah, you're right to to point to these other bits about um, the allegmatic dynamism, which which we haven't uh, talked about. Um, so um, for those who um, like this is this is one of his terms that he invents. Um, uh, allegmatics is is uh, one of his terms, um, which has to do with uh, the sort of reciprocity of the dynamic and the static. Um, so how how structure and process are sort of um, reciprocally related to each other. So um, structure produces uh, or structure sort of um, uh, serves as the basis for some sort of process, and then process produces the structure. So they're they're sort of reciprocally related to each other. Um, um, but I think here he's talking about, um, um, yeah, so I, I would back up a little bit and, and try to understand um, uh, these three rapports that he's, he's talking about in the individual. Um, so he, when we have an opposition like interiority and exteriority or uh, freedom and determinism or any of these other pairs of terms that he, uh, that he lists at the beginning here, um, each of the we have to understand each of those terms themselves as as being a kind of allegmatic dynamism. So they they have um, they each of these terms is a kind of reciprocity of structure and process. Uh, and then uh, the relation between each of those terms is itself an allegmatic dy dynamism. Uh, uh, so there's a a sort of triple relation uh, of of these three terms to each other and um, in particular, the the relations that that are that each of the terms are um, condition the relation between those two terms. Uh, um, so the but at the same time, the relation between the two terms is a condition for each of the terms themselves. So they, there's like a, a again a, a higher order reciprocity between the um, the terms and the relation between them. Um, and again, this is all very abstract uh, and and difficult. Um, but I think, yeah, it's it's. Um, I think he's giving us here a very um, sort of schematic and and abstract um, version of his his general model of individuality, um, which is um, um, this kind of uh, relation of relations um, that kind of. Uh, separates itself from itself and reunites with itself in one sort of unified motion, um, and and I think that's sort of this this very abstract version 
of what he gives us in much more concrete terms in um, in volume one. What is the information here? Is it like uh, the kind of uh, uh, content of individual information? Like how we understand information here? Right. Um, yeah, this, this is also difficult because um, like in, in as we saw throughout volume one, he he wants to give an account of information that is um, not exactly in line with the um, sort of standard account of information. He wants to uh, develop a, a new um, account for uh, information that sort of underlies the transmission of information as opposed to um, being what is transmitted. Um, but I think here, when he talks about information, um, he he wants to, um, he so he says, um, uh, let me get the English translation. Yeah, so he says, it would be false to say that the individual is merely information. So he wants to, um, he wants to understand the individual as having this informational structure, but not being reducible to information. Um, uh, so information is something that is um, uh, like, I, I guess we can think of it as structure in general or order or regularity. Um, this is something that the individual contains and, and uh, you know, an essential aspect of the individual, but the individual can't be reduced to something um, that is uh, purely order or uh, structure. Uh, the the individual is is the condition of structure. It's what makes structure possible, as opposed to itself being structure. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah, I um I think this this footnote is something like we um we have to read it in connection with volume one. Uh, like this this footnote is almost like a a, a one page summary. Of, of everything yeah. one uh and so like each line we have to sort of unpack it by like going back to one chapter of volume one and, and sort of re rereading that that chapter in volume one uh to understand everything in this footnote i think it's kind of a strange place to put like a one page summary of your entire philosophy <laughs> <laughs> yes it certainly is um and yeah and like there's no mention of Descartes in this in this footnote. And <laughs> he's clearly talking about his own um, you know philosophical position as opposed to summarizing anything that Descartes says uh, in this footnote. Um, so it's yeah, it's very strange that he would just sort of throw this in here. But uh, I guess it it's just a sort of a reminder that it, it pays to um, to pay attention sometimes to um, the footnotes and and it also makes me. Um, Sort of wonder about the editorial decision in the translation to put the um, the notes at the end of the book. Um, yeah, it, which uh, makes it easy to you know miss this passage or and similar passages um, because uh, in the French text their their footnotes they're on the same page, so you see immediately that you know there is this giant footnote. Um, whereas in the English one, you you just see the number and then you have to like. You know, think. Okay, I'm gonna go look at the end of the book to see if the, this is actually like a, a a footnote that I want to read or not. Um, so yeah, I I dislike um, end notes for that reason. But whatever, we have to live with the decision that the editors made. <laughs> I agree that footnotes are infinitely better. And I think worst of all is uh, end of chapter notes, which you sometimes get as well. Like you, uh, it's like the worst of both worlds somehow. Yeah. But, <laughs> I don't know why people do it. Um, okay, let's see. What, what else? Um, I think 
we'll probably just stick with this footnote for the rest of, of the time we have left for today because um, uh, instead of restarting on the text, um, because I wanted to also talk about um, um, uh, this notion of analogy, um, which he, he has um, talked about in volume one. Um, I, I think it's in the intro introduction to volume one, he talks about um, the, the way that transductive thinking is what is valid in analogical thinking. Um, and, and so uh, transductive thinking um, has to do with the relations that make up an entity. So um, an entity is composed of uh, some sort of set of relations and um, we can compare the set of relations that make up entity A um, to the set of relations that make up entity B. Uh, and we can say that, you know, there's some sort of similar structure of relations between the two. And, and this is what analogical thinking consists in. Um, but analogy is, um, is not a, a, a completely valid mode of reasoning because um, you can have something, you know, entity A might have properties one, two, three, and uh, entity B might have properties one, two, and four. Um, so it, they share some properties, but they have a, a set of different properties as well. Um, so you can't necessarily um, reason from the structure of, of entity A to the, the structure of entity B. Uh, it's not like a, a, a necessary mode of reasoning, um, but uh, what transduction uh, captures is this capacity for analogical reasoning um, it is, is um, or it captures what is the basis for analogical reasoning when it is valid. So it captures, you know, these, the structure of entity A, uh, these properties one and two that A has and properties one and two that B has. It, it captures the relationship between the two. This seems to be the basis of his critique of holomorphism in the brick making example is that it's a kind of invalid or it's it's maybe merely the use of the technical paradigm by holomorphism is merely analogical and not truly transductive and you know maybe this is obvious to say but it seems like this is why um these paradigms are so important for simon don in general and why he so goes into such exhaustive detail in explaining these you know, biological and physical processes, because in order for this, you know, this kind of, this reasoning that's like analogical reasoning to be valid, it has to be, uh, it has to be, there has to be a, a true similarity in this, or almost identity of, of uh, structure, or of this relation between two individuals in order for transductive knowledge to be possible. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, but I would also say that I think um, analogical thinking or transductive thinking is a is a kind of creativity at the same time. So if if you were purely um, uh, like bound to something that is the same, if you can only reason about entity B uh, insofar as it's the same as entity A, then you're not really learning anything, right? You you just sort of repeat what you already know about entity A, and then you you say it about entity B, but it's it's the same uh, set of relations that you're you're dealing with. Um, so I think um, transductive thinking has to sort of grasp not just what's similar or the same between entity A and entity B, um, but it has to sort of understand the um, ontogenesis of those entities. That it has to have this dynamic nature to it. Um, so it, it understands um, how 
the these entities come into being uh, uh, like this sort of um, ontological um, relation that makes up the the entity. Um, it has to grasp this in its dynamism, in its coming into being, uh, and it, it's precisely um, by undergoing this kind of um, uh, uh, sort of learning process. Um, so you have to go through all the details of, you know, the brick making example or all the different kinds of um, uh, corals and stuff that we looked at in volume one. Um, you have to go through all these different examples and sort of learn and um, uh, you can't sort of skip over the details in that sense because you have to uh, undergo a transformation as opposed to just arriving at the end point and saying, okay, this is what transduction is or, or whatever. Um, you have to, you have to actually perform the action in your in your knowledge in order to grasp uh, transduction, uh, in order to um, as opposed to just sort of um, learning a proposition and saying you know transduction is X or transduction is Y. You have to actually perform it yourself. Right. Yeah. And so transduction and knowledge is one of these relations of relations where you you. In grasping the ontogenesis of an entity, you grasp the relation that produces it, and then you compare it, or you relate that to another relation that is the ontogenesis of another entity. And then that relation between those relations individuates knowledge, right? Yes, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, so you have um, like this grasp of transduction or this grasp of individuation is itself an individuation in our knowledge, it is itself a transductive process. Um, and and so we have to, um, you know, like the only way to know a transductive process is to perform transduction in our knowledge, um, because as, as we talked about earlier, concepts can't grasp uh, a transductive process in in uh, in the way that it can grasp a, an entity that exists and has certain properties. Um, so um, yeah, this this uh, there's a sort of um, I don't want to say existential, but um, something along those lines. There's a certain aspect of um, you, something you have to go through, you have to um, experience for yourself to um, be able to have transductive knowledge uh, and knowledge of transduction. Um, it, it's it can't be something that you sort of passively accept uh, in in a way that you might learn about, like, uh, I don't know, the list of capitals of different countries or whatever. The thing is that, like, Angus, like, you you read it, read it, read it like Fukuoka, the order of things, right? I mean, you club the the reading reading group of the Fuku, the order of things, right? Right. Yeah, we had a yeah. order of things reading group. Right, right. And then in a way, like that, that, that the very first part, um, that is definitely like that's kind of like as far as I understand, that's development of epistemology of human knowledge, but kind of first part like the traditional and modern and then one more three three kind of particular epistemologies like Foucault brought traditional to classical and the modern something that then he talked about analogic or understanding that that, that was there and then in a way with Mungdong's focus as far as I understand is more more like ontological or ontogen ontogenesis but why this part like a uh, overlaps like the, the the first part of the the order of things, like epistemological development of the human knowledge. You mean like the use of resemblance in the Renaissance? Yeah, yeah, that kind of like a resemblance or yeah, analogy. I mean, by by using that kind of ideas, like I can I can vividly remember like the each 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 sentences and part. But 
there was some part you know do you remember like an L- to 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 ex- ex- explain like the 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 development of the human knowledge like Fuku brought to some kind of analogical understanding kind of nope yeah i mean on the subject of resemblance one thing i read reread recently in my notes on volume 1 is that you know distinguishing between an analogy and resemblance um Simon Don points out the un- untrustworthiness of thinking by resemblance and uses this example of the luminiferous ether uh, that we talked about in our reading of volume one, where the people assumed that because light has this wave behavior, there must be a medium that it propagates through just like sound does. This, but, you know, eventually experimentation revealed this to be kind of untenable. And so, you know, I think that we discussed this as a, as the danger of, um, of thinking by resemblance and maybe having kind of an inadequate grasp of the, either the, you know, the detail of the I- identity of the individual or, or of its ontogenesis, which is required for transductive thinking, which is not just resemblance, but um, this other mode of thought. Yeah, I think uh, another um, example that he gives in um, on the mode of existence of technical objects um, so he, he criticizes um, uh, a sort of uh, classificatory approach to technical objects that would sort of compare them uh, as being um, similar or, or different uh, and, and, and uh, classify them into species and genera. Um, and his example that he gives is um, if you look at a, like an alarm clock uh, and you compare it to, I don't know, um, uh, like you have a, a mechanical clock, um, and a digital clock are similar in certain respects. They have the same function uh, and, and so on. But if you look at the um, detailed functioning, like if you actually analyze how an alarm, a mechanical alarm clock works, it's actually more similar to a crossbow than it is to a digital clock. Um, it, uh, the, the sort of um, the, the functioning, the actual um, technical schema um, of the alarm clock is closer to a crossbow than it is to some other kind of clock that has the same function. Um, so if you if you just stick to um, a sort of surface level of similarity and resemblance, um, you you lose sight of the real technical schema that underlies the functioning of the object. Uh, and um, it's only by focusing on the technical essence of the object that you have um, this sort of transductive knowledge that allows for a grasp of the genesis of that uh, technical object. Oh, that's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, we could probably spend another hour just talking about this footnote, but um, we're pretty much out of time. Um, so I think we should stop here for today and then we'll pick up from uh, where we left off in the text. Um, we, we won't um, go back to this footnote, but we'll, we'll pick up from uh, where we left off in the text itself, if that works for everyone. Yeah, sure. That sounds sure. great. We'll have a separate two-year-long reading group just on this footnote. <laughs> yeah, we might need to. Okay, uh, thanks everyone for coming out and uh, hope to see you next time. Okay, thank you so much. See you next week. Thanks everyone. See you next week.